This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. I am part of a lost generation and I refuse to believe that I can change the world. I realize this may be a shock, but happiness comes from within is a lie, and money will make me happy. So in 30 years, I will tell my children they are not the most important thing in my life. My employer will know that I have my priorities straight because work is more important than family. I tell you this, once upon a time, families stayed together. But this will not be true in my era. This is a quick fix society. Experts tell me 30 years from now, I will be celebrating the 10th anniversary of my divorce. I do not concede that I will live in a country of my own making. In the future, environmental destruction will be the norm. No longer can it be said that my peers and I care about this earth. It will be evident that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It is foolish to presume that there is hope. And all of this will come true unless we choose to reverse it. There is hope. It is foolish to presume that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It will be evident that my peers and I care about this earth. No longer can it be said that environmental destruction will be the norm. In the future, I will live in a country of my own making. I do not concede that 30 years from now, I will be celebrating the 10th anniversary of my divorce. Experts tell me this is a quick fix society, but this will not be true in my era. Family stayed together once upon a time. I tell you this, family is more important than work. I have my priorities straight because my employer will know that they are not the most important thing in my life. So in 30 years, I will tell my children, money will make me happy is a lie, and true happiness comes from within. I realize this may be a shock, but I can change the world, and I refuse to believe that I am part of a lost generation. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Well, we got like, he's good and she's good. Anybody else? How are y'all doing? All right, excellent. Thank you. Um, but just before we start, I just wanted to let you know, I think it's worth saying as an outsider um, that gets to observe a little bit, you need to know um, that your pastor really loves you. And I spend a fair bit of time with people in ministry, and I hate to say it, that is not always the case. Um, but I just want you to be encouraged to know that your pastor and your staff, they really care about you. And uh, so let, let's pray. Jesus, would you open your um, word to us? And we want to hear you speak to us. And if you don't, um, then we're just wasting our time here. And uh, we don't want that to be the case. Um, So come and take over and speak to our hearts. Thank you. Amen. Uh, So I I, I know you're in a series on millennials, and I was born in 1982, which makes me the, I am the cutoff for millennial. I am the oldest millennial in the world. (laughs) And uh, and I graduated in the year 2000, uh, which was kind of why they, you know, that was the break for our generation um, starting, which is kind of funny because I I remember in fourth, starting in fourth grade, they started giving us t-shirts and rulers and pencils with uh, this slogan on it that said, um, you are the first class of the new millennium. Um, but they were wrong. We were the last class of the old millennium, you know, and the school system should have known that, shouldn't they? You know, but instead they were the ones telling us, you're the first class, and uh, they were wrong. But, um, but I wanted to take a look at, at kind of how um, information and culture is passed uh, from one generation to another. So what I'd like you to do is, would you turn to someone next to you, 
and um, talk about when you were learning to drive, uh, who was the person sitting shotgun, and how good a job did they do? And, uh, and if you're not there yet, who do you want sitting shotgun when you're learning to drive? So it's okay, turn, talk to each other, engage the other people around you. I see lots of hand motions like this. I don't know. <laughs> when, uh, if, if I could share a little. When I was 13, uh, when I was 13, which I know is not the age you're supposed to learn, I, you know, legally I'm sure it's 15, but my, my grandfather, we'd go visit him in North Carolina, and, uh, and he would stick me in the car and we would drive over to Young Harris College. It was a small college, and in the summer there weren't many students there. And so uh, he would sit shotgun and stick me in the front seat, and I hit every single curb that that college campus has. Uh, and I think I gave him a heart attack a few times, but he was awesome uh, teaching me how to drive there. Speed up here, slow down there, turn your blinker on. It could save a life, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and he did a great job teaching me how to drive. At, at 13, I was more confident than I should have been. And um, I'm still learning. And, and uh, I noticed, though, that my mom, who I love very much, when she would sit shotgun, the whole conversation would change. Um, like uh, blood pressure would go up. Um, there was there was a lot more yelling um, and and maybe some uh, maybe some sweating and maybe some swearing, just depending on the you know. And and it's it's still the same. Um, whenever I'm driving and she's there, you know, we've kind of uh, that relationship has stayed the same. And I love my mom, but man, it was hard. And uh, it depends on who's sitting shotgun, how you learn how to do the whole thing. And that will affect you, whoever sat shotgun with you while you were learning to drive. It'll affect you for the rest of your life, how well you drive. Now, it doesn't say much about me. I have speeding tickets. I've had speeding tickets in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, maybe one other. In Illinois, by the way, they are not joking around, just so you know. Um, but on the other side of things, um, I, when I was growing up, my, my dad passed away when I was seven. And, uh, and so I, I didn't have a, a man in the house, um, especially when I was in high school, to, um, to teach me how to, how to deal with one of these. To anybody else, this was like this deep mystery of the world. How in the world do you tie a tie? And hey, but by the way, I'm a millennial who owns a tie, so take a picture, um, show it to your kids. There was a millennial that owned a tie once. And, um, and, and uh, so I, my mom would have... Her, my friend's dads come over like the night before a dance or something like that and they would tie my tie for me and they'd slip it off and hang it up so I could just slip it on the next day. You know, how many of you have ties that have been tied for like five years? They're still that way. Yeah, and it's amazing. But um, when I went into ministry, um, it turns out you need a tie every now and then or people expect you to for weddings and funerals and, and stuff like that. And, and so I, uh, I, I didn't know how to tie one because no one had ever taught me. 
And so I did what any red-blooded millennial does. I would go to YouTube, uh, right? And, uh, and I learned how to do everything on YouTube. And I spent, it, it also, tieatie.com is a real thing, and they have videos there. Um, and so I spent a long time, tra- half Windsor, full Windsor, four in hand. Ah, there's all this stuff to learn that's actually kind of hard. And I didn't, I couldn't figure it out actually four years. How sad is that? For years, um, I, it took me a long time to figure this thing out because no one was there. I, I had YouTube. I didn't have a person. And um, we live in a, in a culture uh, that is highly individualistic. Uh, we value you being your own person. You, you aren't supposed to learn to do something like someone else does it. You're supposed to learn how you are going to do it. We tell people, be your own man, be your own woman, make your own way. Plagiarism is a bad thing in our era, right? I mean, you know, and actually in past eras, that was a positive thing. It showed that you were well-read. It showed that you knew who to check your sources from. And, and, and here, it's like, come up with your own ideas always. And so we are encouraged in our culture to always be our own person and not to imitate anyone else. And I think a lot of that comes from uh, probably Friedrich Nietzsche, um, or Nietzsche, uh, however you want to say his name. I-, I was on a kick of reading his stuff a couple years ago. And he has this um, k- kind of progression of how people are supposed to live. And he has impacted our society and our culture more than we will ever know. He's changed the air you breathe and the water that you swim in with his ideas because he's kind of infected and influenced everything. And one of the things that he said is that the first stage in life is the camel, where you learn to bear the value system of somebody else. You you learn to take on their values and their way of doing things. Second stage in life is the lion, where you tear that thing to shreds. It is your job and your mission in life to tear apart any value system that anyone has ever handed you. Because the third stage is the baby where you need to make your own. You need to make your own way. In fact, he told his own followers, do not imitate me. Do not follow me. Do not do things the way that I do them. You need to figure out how you do them. And that has impacted our culture, especially in America, that hyper-individualism in a lot of really positive ways. Uh, But it's also given us something that's pretty toxic on the backside. And my generation does not know uh, how to learn from anyone who is older than us, and older people do not know how to pass that along to us because we've kind of said everybody just does their own thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I I wanted to look a little bit in Scripture and see how this goes. Uh, And so part of what's going on is that uh, we're going to look at a book called 1 Corinthians. Uh, The gospel has started spreading all over the Roman Empire at this point. And there's these places where it springs up where you would think, well, of course a church would form there. But then there's this place called Corinth. And Corinth is a mess. Uh, What was going on in 146 B.C.? As the Roman Empire was expanding, they ran into Corinth. The Corinthians didn't play along very nice, and so Rome smashed the place, uh, burned the city down, and said, no one lives here for 100 years. And so that was 146 B.C. In 46 B.C., 100 years later, Julius Caesar doesn't want this beautiful port city and a great location to go to waste. So he takes his retired military generals and gives them chunks of this city so that they can start running the trade for the entire Roman Empire out of Corinth. And so he's running the political structure of the empire, and he's got his buddies running the economic side of things. And, uh, and so what's going on there is this is the place to get rich in the empire because trade is booming, and it was hard to jump social classes in that day. So people are moving to Corinth to get rich quick. 
Um, if they're also obsessed with fashion and what's in. If they're wearing big hats in Rome on Monday, they will, will want to be wearing big hats in Corinth on Tuesday. If they're wearing skinny jeans in Rome on Wednesday, they want to be wearing skinny jeans in Corinth by Thursday. I mean, they are on top of it in their culture. And also, it was a place for pleasure. Um, there was a temple right next to Corinth up on a hill um, where a thousand prostitutes lived there. And every single night, all 1,000 of them would get in a single file line, light a candle, and walk down the hill and surround the city. And that is how every single night started in Corinth. And so this isn't revival hits Mayberry. This is revival hits Vegas. Got me? And so he has problems going on in this church that he doesn't have to deal with anywhere else. Like, you guys thought that was okay? Uh, you know, we're like, hey, man, we're Vegas, got saved. What do you want? And, and so he's trying to walk them through trying to figure some things out. And in uh, chapter 10, one of the things that he was talking about is food sacrificed to idols. Uh, is it okay to eat? Is it not okay to eat? In this day, that was actually kind of a big issue. And so he walks them through this thing, and basically he says, whether you eat it or not, that's not the point. You can eat it and be fine. It's not going to hurt you. You can not eat it. Whatever, it's okay. There are other principles in play. And um, in verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So whether you eat it or not, it doesn't matter. Are you thinking about the glory of God? Are you thinking about God? Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. So second thing, it's not just about the glory of God. It's are you loving your neighbor? When you do, is it hurting anyone else? If it's hurting someone else, it, I don't care if it's okay for you. You need to stop. You need to stop. Uh, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, which I think is great. That's Christianity 101, right? This is basic following Jesus. We don't seek our own good, right? Group nod. Group nod. We do not seek our own good. We seek the good of others. We do not defend our own rights, correct? As Jesus followers, we defend the rights of others. We do not seek our own good, but the good of many so that they might be saved. And here's how, here's how I want to show you do that. Here's how they might be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now that's interesting because that is, first of all, one of the most cocky things that I can think that someone could say. You want to know how to follow Jesus? Follow me. I'll show you how to follow Jesus. Isn't that kind of egotistical? You want to know how to be a Christian? I'll show you. Just do what I do. Do what I do. And, and, and But this is actually kind of all over Scripture, which we'll get to in a minute. But this really pushes on us as a culture. If you want to follow Jesus, imitate me. If you want to be like Christ, I want you to follow me. And we have stopped saying this to each other as a church because our culture doesn't know how to say this to each other about much of anything. You know, even and think about our education system. We educate people sometimes for decades, literally decades. And, and then someone graduates as an expert, and then they're supposed to go in the field and actually start doing something. Has anyone ever met these people? people. They have lots of education, zero experience. Yeah? Yeah. And when I was in seminary, uh, it was my first or second semester. I was like 21 or 22, and we were in my class on pastoral care. And this is like tough stuff. This is hard stuff. This is the, the, the tough stuff of the job. How do you walk with someone through divorce? How do you help someone who's struggling with suicide? How do you tell the difference between schizophrenia and someone who's demonized? I mean, like, what do you do? This is hard. 
And me and my buddies, who were like 21 and 22, we had lots of really good ideas. We were very smart, you know, and we sat to the front. We were very free to share our ideas. And there was this wonderful African-American man in the back who had been pastoring the same church for like 15 years, 15 years, and it was, was now getting his degree. And he would let us finish, and then his, his words were longer than mine. You know, he would say, well, let me tell you how it works. And then he would say something that he had seen something that he had done. And it took me a little while to figure out that he knows what he's talking about and I don't. I had just learned a bunch of stuff. He had actually done something. And the lessons we learn with the eye go the deepest, don't they? And it turns out that this, this, this idea is all over Scripture. Um, here's a place somewhere else in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. By the, by the way, Paul wasn't super up on himself. He had, all over the place, he talked about how he wasn't good at stuff. There were things that he struggled with. His past was a mess. So it's not like he thought he was the greatest guy ever. Um, in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Funny how those are the same thing. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit uh, later in Thessalonians. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea. And churches are people, not building systems or structures. So you became imitators of God's assembly, his people in Judea, which were in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things these churches suffered from the Jews. Uh, here's, here's one in, in Hebrews that I, I think is great. Um, and, and so what's going on here? He's writing to a group of people who are having trouble being motivated in their faith. He says, we do not want you to become lazy. So any of you ever felt a little difficulty being motivated in your faith? For me, that's called Tuesday, right? And he says, we don't want you to become lazy. So here's the prescription. But to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what was promised. And he brings up a particular person in the next verse. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. And he goes on to talk about Abraham. It's really wonderful. But here's the thing, is when he wanted to tell them how to not lose heart in their faith, he held up a person. Someone who had struggled in their faith in the past, but made it. He says, I want you to see how this person did it so that you can be like them. Man, do we do something about having skin on truth changes things. John Calvin, who's a theologian that I don't quote much because most of the things that he's famous for saying, I don't agree with him on, but he really is one of the great thinkers in the church, one of the great thinkers in the church. And he was saying this about that passage. When a naked truth is set before us, it does not so much affect us. Isn't that true? Like when someone just tells you how to do something and leaves, or tells you what's right and then leaves, that doesn't really affect us. Is when we see what is required of us fulfilled in the person of Abraham. See, truth with skin on makes all the difference. Like in the East, they still have more of an apprentice model with how they teach. Right? It's not just let me give you information, it's let me show you how to do it. Some of you in here probably have jobs where you had to be apprenticed uh, first. 
before you could be certified to do what you do. But unfortunately, even the church has bought into the same mindset as the rest of our society, that if someone just hears the right lectures, they will come out a Christian. And if they haven't come out a Christian yet, they need to sit through more. And so if we can educate people in all the Christian-y stuff for 20 years, and then we're surprised when they go out and they fall off a cliff as soon as they leave for college or whatever else, because they've never seen anyone live out their faith, they have only heard about it from a stage or a Sunday school class, and we wonder what's going on. We have given people naked truth without skin on so much of the time, and that is a tragedy for my generation and what we're passing on to the people below us, because no one is saying, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Here's the deal. Jesus came. He lived for 30 years in hidden obscurity, and then for three years he did ministry, and he told people, follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And then he died, he rose again, and then he what? Left. Jesus left. He did not give us himself to follow. We do not have Jesus to follow, do we? We have each other. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to fill us, to say to each other, follow me as I follow Christ. We don't have Jesus to follow. We have each other. In fact, isn't that like this beautiful plan of God that it's not just God beaming down from heaven how to follow him. It's passed from person to person like this beautiful virus that infects the world. And that is how we're supposed to live. You know, I'm... My dad, like I said, died when I was seven. He died of AIDS in 1989. And my mom got remarried uh, just a little bit later to a man who was abusive. And so I spent my childhood either scared that my dad was going to die or scared that someone was going to beat my mom. And I had never seen a man love somebody. But I would go to my friends' houses, Jeff and Trevor particularly, and I saw Mr. Johnston love his wife. And I learned not just what it means to be a man, but a man of God who loves his wife. I saw him care for his kids. Mr. Davis, it was great. I, it was, I would sit there, and he, he didn't even know he was fathering me. He didn't know that, that he was being a dad to me. But I would, I would watch him sometimes. There was a game on TV, and I would be watching Mr. Davis because he would care about people in his house. He would pray for them. He would talk about Jesus with them. And I would sit there and go, oh, my gosh. I remember being 17 going, so that's what this is supposed to be like? Because there was, I had heard all this stuff. Naked truth had been set before me, but I hadn't seen it with skin on yet. And here was somebody showing me how to live. And it changed my life. And then, like, the joy of my life has been to pour into some people that are younger than me. Right now, I have this guy named Adam. He's 22. He just got married. And we meet together, like, every week. And, it, you know, it used to be just over coffee. Or, but now, now it's like he's in my, he comes over, he and his wife, to help my kids uh, catch fireflies in the front yard, you know, and stick them in a jar. I, I was showing him how to use a crock pot the other day, which, by the way, when you're 22, a crock pot is magic, Right? You know, like you just stick the food in and come back eight hours later and you've got a meal. Yes, and it's better than Pop-Tarts, right? This is important. And so he helps me install my dishwasher. I mean, we have learned how to do life together and I have to make space for him. My goal is for him to learn how to empty my dishwasher. 
you know, if he knows where all the forks and knives in my house go, where, where they go and all the plates, then we won. We won. I want him to see me in my life. When I was in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, there was this uh, cold winter day, and Wilmore is a one-stoplight town where I was going to seminary, and there was this kid in town named Gideon. Um, this is Gideon, and he had busted on his skateboard and had this nosebleed. He had knocked his nose open. You know, his blood every, looked like a murder scene, and um, I think he was actually okay, but he was you know, kind of scared, and so I walked him home, and the first thing I had to do is explain that I did not give him the nosebleed when we got home, you know, but I learned to get to know Gideon, and that was this start for a couple of years. I was in his life. I got to know his family. I'd spend time with them. He would come over to our house where me and some roommates were living. He, we, we'd go on hikes. We talked about faith. We talked about girls. We talked about school. We talked about soccer. We talked about how to love Jesus. And it got to the point where he would come into my house, eat my food, and then tell me he was there. Isn't that awesome? Like, he was so comfortable with it. And, and that, those years with Gideon changed my life and changed his. They really did. And I moved away seven years ago, and I got a call from Gideon a little bit ago. This is him grown up. And he had just gotten engaged. He had gotten engaged earlier that day. And he called me to say, hey, I want, I want you to come to my wedding so that you can read scripture and pray for us. And I was, okay, I'm in, I'm in. And then as I, I checked my, my schedule, I couldn't be there. Um, I had to be at an annual conference actually here in Springfield at the Civic Center. And, um, and so he texted me that morning. I, I was so sad I couldn't be there. And he said, hey, I know you can't be here, but would you call and pray for me? And so I found this little corner in the Civic Center where I got to call Gideon and get on the phone and, and like, bless him as he was walking into this new season of life. Because that time where I got to say to him, follow me as I try to follow Christ. I'm not any good at it, but I want, I want to try to do this together. That changed both of our lives. And let me say, my generation, we are in trouble because we are not asking for it and no one is giving it to us. This, this like, will you show me how to live? And could I take a minute and just talk to the people that are older than me in the room? Um, we need you. My generation needs you. Our culture is offering us nothing of any value. They are offering us nothing of any value, but some of you have been to war or you have sent your spouses there, or you've buried your children or raised your kids well, or you went through a hard time in life where you lost all your money and didn't think that there was any way out of this financial crisis, but you found God on the other side. Some of you have battled cancer. Some of you have gone through education. So you guys have been digging wells for decades that we don't even know are out there to drink from. And here's the deal. If you don't help us, culture is leaving us with Kim Kardashian. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it as a culture if you don't help us. We need you. And some, some of you have decided that any, anybody younger than you can just do their own thing. They don't care about you. You don't care about them. And here's the deal. One day you will answer to Jesus for your selfishness. But, but those of you that have maybe decided to care for someone younger than you, or you've never thought about it, which my guess is most people, you've never even thought about it because we don't talk about it. 
there is a chance for you in your life to raise up someone in the faith. Not in some super spiritual way, but, but just let me show you how to live. We need you. And if I could talk to the people my age and younger, you need it. You are not so sharp that you can figure all this out on your own. And if there's anything that we've done, we have worshipped at the altar of change. The culture blows in something new, and the next Tuesday when it's old, it blows out. Do you know, like, I got my new iPhone this week because my iPhone 5 was old. Let me say that again. My iPhone 5 was old. And in our culture, that is how we are living. We don't know what it means to have anything that stays. And so you need to find someone who's been around longer than you and ask them to show you how to live life. And what a beautiful chance it is with God to grow closer to him through each other. It turns out this is the chosen method of God because pretty soon our songs, our buildings, our methods of doing church, our programs, our sermons will all be completely disconnected from culture. We are not going to reach a single person in 100 years by doing church the way we do it today. But discipleship will still change lives. That's how the world has changed. And so what I'd like you to do uh, is consider some of the things that are going to be going on in this church to impact the next generation. And um, Bob is going to come and share a few of those things now. I went and saw the movie uh, The Intern yesterday with Susan, Robert De Niro, and Hathaway. And uh, it's a amusing film. I would encourage you to see that. It's about this 70-year-old guy that goes into the workplace, and he's learning all this technology from millennials, and yet they're learning a lot from him. And what our vision is at Schweitzer is to build a culture where that kind of stuff can happen, only on something much more important, a relationship with Christ, doing life together, life skills together. And so in your bulletin this morning, if you want to take that out and look at that, there's a description of mutual transforming relationships. And our vision is simply this, that every one of us, no matter who we are or what generation we're a part of, we are open to having a relationship with someone of a different generation than us. Something that's mutually transforming, something that's mutually helpful. That uh, if you are a person today who is open to that kind of relationship, I would invite you to check the box and put that in the offering in a moment. But more than that, I'm asking you to do this. Don't sit around and wait for someone to assign you a mentor or to assign you someone that you're going to hang out with and do life together. If you haven't already, seek out someone of a different generation and just go to lunch. Go do something and see what God does with it. We've got a 70-year-old guy that, uh, that's hanging out with a 20-something right now at Schweitzer. Got a guy that's in his 20s that's wanting uh, someone a little bit older than him, so he's going to meet somebody today that's uh, a Gen Xer. It's that kind of stuff that we see happening all the time because we think that is probably one of the most transforming things that can happen to everybody, every one of us. So I want to encourage you to be open to that, to seek that out for yourself. If you check that box, sometime in the future, you're going to get some data, some information. Brett's going to do some teaching tonight on this topic, on more of the how 
and getting us better oriented. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, Join me in expressing our thanks to Brett for his message today.